Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. All right, if you want to open your Bible to Revelation 19, and I say that because I'm encouraging us to be old school and to bring our Bibles, find a good study Bible. We have some good study Bibles in the Resource Center out here, some NIV, some NASB, some NRSV. We've got a good assortment of study Bibles because we are, we're people of the Scriptures Now more than ever, we just want to immerse ourselves in the words of Scripture, in the Bible. Now is the time to read it daily, to pray it, to hide it in your heart, to wield it as a sword. And so I want to encourage you today in a fresh way to give yourself to the Word of God. Give yourself, find a time every day. If we can find time for a podcast or a walk or an exercise, then we can find time to ingest the Word of God because it'll change us, transforms the mind, renews the heart, fills us with power. And really, that's what we do on a a Sunday morning as we look into the Scripture and meditate on it together. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Revelation 19. Last time, we, we looked at chapter 18. And last week, Ronnie and Constance spoke about prayer, and I was able to listen to that and grateful to them for their word on prayer and some of their personal story, Jesus answers prayer, right? So last time we looked at Revelation, we looked at chapter 18, and it was the fall of Babylon. And we've seen that Babylon represents not only the historical nation of Babylon that had turned its back on God and become an enemy of God's people, but it became kind of a model or a paradigm for future spiritual Babylons that also went that way and turned their backs on God and became opponents of God and actually went after God's people to persecute them. And so John is writing this letter in the first century to the churches of Asia Minor who were part of the Roman Empire. And the visions reveal that Rome is like Babylon. And so you'll find at times the references to Babylon is falling. God is going to judge Babylon. God has given opportunities for the people in this spiritual Babylon to repent, and they've hardened their hearts. And so we saw in chapter 18, the vision was saying to the people of God, come out of Babylon. Come out of this evil empire and give yourselves to God. Repent. Give yourselves to Jesus. He is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. And so today we're going to look at chapter 19. And the theme here, we're going to get into some different facets of the the chapter, the text here. But the theme is Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is King and he is Lord. The, the chapter is going to unfold in four parts here. We're going to see in verses 1 to 8 a series of hallelujahs, worship erupting from heaven and drawing the earth into it. Verses 9 through 10, there's going to be a reference to the marriage of the Lamb. 
It's going to be announced. And then verses 11 through 16, where we're going to spend most of the time looking at closely the warrior Messiah, Jesus. Heaven opens up and he appears. And then lastly, we'll end with this briefly in verses 17 to 21. We'll see that the Antichrist, the beast, the beastly system, and all of the allies of this system are destroyed. So, Lord, we ask as we look at this, as we read this and look at it together, we ask for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, in the knowledge of your word. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the anointing within us that teaches us. And so we call on that anointing right now. Holy Spirit, would you make the word of God come alive to us, speak to us, encourage us, embolden us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read the whole chapter as we do each time. And can you believe we're already at 19? So after this, we've got chapter 20, 21, and 22, and we've accomplished a good thing this year. We've worked all the way through the book of Revelation. So I'm going to read the the chapter here, and again, chapter 1 says that we read it aloud just as those seven churches in Asia Minor did because there is a blessing in the hearing of the Word of God. There's a blessing in hearing the drama of redemption, a blessing in hearing that God has always been moving human history toward its end in Christ Jesus, that the kingdom of God will be established. It's being established now But the day is coming, as we'll see today, it will be fully consummated. And all the nations, all people from all places and all time will acknowledge that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is good news, friends. So let's read the 21 verses here, beginning at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore, the prostitute, Babylon, that we saw in chapter 18, who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants and all who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
Then I saw heaven opened. And there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has inscribed a name on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of God. Friends, the word of God uh, moves us. Lots of times I read it, my mind spaces out, or other times, but there's something that's just moving me deeply right now about this. And there's a reason we read it together, and we hear it, and we search out its meaning. I think I'm moved because the Lord wins, you know, and that's the message is that it appeared that Jesus lost and that the Roman Empire crushed him and snuffed his life out, lynched him. Really, it was like a first century lynching, some black theologians say. I mean, it, it looked terrible. All his disciples fled from him, and yet in that very death became the victory. And so the book of Revelation portrays him as the slain lamb because there's a great mystery in it. When it looks bleakest, when it looks like it's over, it is game over, then Christ brings resurrection power. And so this is a message that he brought in the first century, and it's a message for the last 2,000 years that Jesus is Lord and that the resurrection power of God flows through him into the church, and we can't lose. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's victory, and that's what this passage is about. Let's look briefly here. I want to spend most of the time on verses 11 through 16, but briefly here, these hallelujahs from heaven. There's four of them in verses 1 to 8, and we're seeing yet again 
another heavenly throne room scene. There's seven of them, and this is the sixth. And this one is centering on the fall of Babylon, first century Rome, and then the marriage of the Lamb. Look at the first hallelujah there in verse 1 toward the end. This is the only time that this word appears in the New Testament. Can you believe that? Hallelujah. And it appears four times here. It's the only time in the 27 books of the New Testament. And it's a, a Hebrew word that literally means praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. And it's found. You can look at this later. It's a beautiful psalm. Psalm 104, verse 35. And the Jewish people said over and over again to the presence of God, the glory of God, the redemptive acts of God. Hallelujah. Let's say that together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So when they're singing this and when we sing it, we're joining the people of God for 4,000 years who've declared the praises of God. Hallelujah. I've been saying that all week with fresh vigor at times when my spirit was dull or I felt not very spiritual, I felt under attack, I would just say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I pictured my 95-year-old grandmother who prayed and said hallelujah all the time, all day, every day, and I think I'm getting it a little bit. You can see the attributes. It's like these people are contemplating the angelic beings and the elders and the redeemed are intoxicated. They're overwhelmed with who God is, and they're calling out God's attributes. Amen. And the reason for the praise here is that God has judged Rome. God has judged the spiritual Babylon. He's avenged the blood of his servants. And we've talked about how hard that is for us to hear and that praise could actually happen. But if we look back at Revelation 6 and 8 and other places, the saints who are being put to death and slaughtered, and we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, even to the point of being beheaded, that they're calling out to God and saying, how long, Lord? How long until you avenge your great name, really? Your name is at stake here. They're grinding us to the ground, they're killing us, they're putting us to the death, putting us to death. And so there's celebration that God is moving now. God is judging, and we're going to see that it's aimed primarily at the dragon and the beast. One commentator says this, the fall of historical Babylon, which is being celebrated here, was a foreshadowing of the greater fall of the latter-day worldwide Babylon. And friends, we're going to see this, we've seen it at multiple points here, but we'll see it later in verses 11 and following. Satan hates God and hates the people of God. And we talked about through history that there are many antichrists. There's a spirit of antichrist that comes over individuals and peoples at different times. But there is coming in the end at some point, the Father knows when that time is, the greatest and most wicked antichrist system. And so there will be a celebration that that final latter-day worldwide Babylon falls before God and Christ is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at verse 6 here. 
just skipping down to the fourth hallelujah. There's multiple hallelujahs here. But at verse 6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters. They've, this multitude has showed up before. In chapter 7 at verse 14, we saw that God had diversity in his heart before any trendy person did in the 20th, 21st century. 2020. It was in God's heart to have the gospel go forth into the nations of the earth, just like we read in Matthew 28, and for Christ followers to emerge and for there to be people from every people group, the great multitude from all nations worshiping before the throne of God, and we're seeing it again here. If we want to know how the church does diversity, we do it through worship. We don't do it through clever programs or twisting one another's arms or these kinds of things. We worship together and we look to the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's Lord over all the nations, and the Lord diversifies his church. Amen? And we're looking forward to that happening in increasing ways. So this multitude is worshiping the Lord. Now what's interesting is the kingdom isn't fully established. We talk a lot around here. We're kingdom people, and we talk about the already. The kingdom is already broken in in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit, and it's not yet. We're looking forward to that moment. George Ladd, I mentioned him many times, a great kingdom theologian. Listen to what he says about this moment in the book of Revelation. At this point in the book, the reign of God has in fact not yet been fully established. It awaits the return of Christ, the chaining of Satan, and the inauguration of Christ's messianic reign, all events yet to be described. The judgment of Babylon has been announced as the first great act in the establishment of God's kingdom. Human and demonic adversaries must be removed before God's rule can prevail. Their overthrow is the beginning of his triumphant rule. So there is a lot happening here. The kingdom of God is coming with new force. And there's blood and offensive things to the modern mind, but right in the middle of this, look at verse 17. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. There's exhortations to praise and glorify God. Why? Because the wedding of the Lamb has come. Look at verse 7. This is beautiful. I just want us to meditate on this together. Look at this, verses 7 and 8. People are praising and worshiping. Verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And look at this. His bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen. So we find this twofold thing happening here. The people of God. This is a rich metaphor that appears over and over again in the Old Testament. And then Jesus picks it up in the Gospels. The people of God are so loved by God that they're called the bride. That's us. And here we are at the end of the story in Revelation. The final chapter, and that theme is going to emerge again and again. And it's God saying, I love my people so much. They will be prepared for my son. 
and they will be joined to him for all eternity through faith and love and adoration. But look, the church, the bride of Christ, has made herself ready. Are we making ourselves ready? Are we thinking that one day we just kind of show up? I'm ready, Lord, or do we take this seriously? Melissa was talking about this a few weeks ago. Al was talking about it. What are we doing now to prepare ourselves for that great wedding day? You don't just charge into it. Many of you know you're kind of neurotic when it comes to wedding preparation, right? Isn't that true? I mean, we obsess and we spend money and we invest and we think about it and we strategize and we try to not kill our in-laws. And what this metaphor, this picture is saying here is that the church in the latter days has made herself ready. She is ready through the grace of God. It's not like she musters up the ability to do all these great works. No, no, look what the next verse says, verse 8. So we have the church being responsible and responsive to grace and being empowered by the mercy and kindness of God. But then look at what verse 8 says. To her it has been granted, it has been graced, it has been given to be clothed with fine linen. So God, in his grace and mercy and in Christ, is clothing the bride and preparing her to meet and encounter and see Christ face to face and be joined with him. It's beautiful, isn't it? Right in the midst of all of this is this beautiful, beautiful image. One person has said that the Lord will save creation through beauty. And this is one of those beautiful moments. It goes on to explain here what she's being clothed with. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the bride, the church, is actually to walk out those good works that God has prepared beforehand. So here we have grace and mercy and kindness and salvation by faith. And we have the human heart the bride responding to it wholeheartedly saying, I love you and I'm in this even to the point of death. This is going to crop up again in a moment. It's interesting also to see here in, the, in biblical times there are two parts to a wedding. There's what's called the betrothal, the engagement, it's the period before the wedding, and the man and woman are actually considered husband and wife before the marriage is consummated and they're faithful to one another during that interim time. And then the day comes, just like the text is saying here, that the wedding actually occurs. And in an ancient wedding in the first century, this would have started with a procession, a group of family and friends going to the bride's house and to pick her up, to get her and bring her back to the groom's house for the marriage feast. And that's what's being announced here, friends, in the midst of all of the satanic attack against the church and the people of God in the nations. The church is in love and enthralled and unstoppable, the unstoppable bride of Christ. 
And friends, this is going to happen one day. It's happened throughout the history of the church. And I put some images up here to give us examples of antichrists that have gone after the people of God. And it's going to happen again. And so we don't know when, but the New Testament calls the church to live as if it's going to happen. And it keeps us sharp and sober. And it keeps us from playing church. We read the word of God and it should awaken us and it should lead us to live lives wholeheartedly. I am the bride of Christ. I am the beloved and I'm, he gave everything for me and I'm giving everything for him. He has my body. He has my money. He has my home. He has my children. I am all in. That is normal New Testament Christianity. That's not strange. It's not like you go to a church and say, well, those people are radical. They read the Bible, they believe it, they do it. That is the norm. That's the norm. And so really, as we look at the book of Revelation, it is quickening us and awakening us to normal Christianity. Anything else is Revelation 3, 14 and following lukewarm stuff that Christ wants to spit out of his mouth. We want to be white hot. Do you want to be white hot? I mean, can you imagine showing up to a wedding and the bride is there looking around, not looking at the groom, maybe even wearing uh, the workout clothes from earlier that day, just not a little BO going on, not interested at all. We, want, we don't want to be, we want to be the bride that is absolutely enthralled, riveted on the person of Jesus now so that when that happens, we're like, ah, this is even greater than I ever imagined, but I've been thinking about you every day. I've been preparing myself for the great wedding day. I've been pondering you. I've been looking at descriptions of you in scripture. I'm in love. I'm in love. Friends, this is what we're going for. This is what we want to raise our young people into. Not lukewarm, tepid, pathetic, powerless, church-going, but white-hot, army of the Lord, beloved bride of Christ, Christianity, normal Christianity. Amen? So the second part here, the marriage of the the Lamb is announced, and the angel commands John to write this down. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to this. This is strange. As I read it, did anyone else scratch your head a little bit at verse 10? This is the apostle John. He wrote the fourth gospel, the book of John. He was Jesus' best friend. He's the one that reclined against Christ at the Last Supper. He knows the very heartbeat of Christ, the word of God. And yet look what's happening here. The apostle of apostles encounters an angel and falls down to worship him. And the angel says, you must not do that. We don't really know why John fell down to worship. It's probably because the message was absolutely overwhelming. And he's just floored, literally. And the messenger was overwhelming. These are angels that block the sun and fill the sun and flood the earth. So John is overwhelmed. He's human. But there's also something hidden in here, and it's a refutation of 
angel worship. Friends, Christians get weird about angels. I mean, sometimes I read stuff, someone will send something about angels, and I'm like, are you spending more time thinking about angels than the king of angels? And that's what this text says here, is that we worship God and Christ alone. And yes, we're grateful for angelic messengers and servants, and we actually have reverence for them. But John, in his experience here, is showing us that we worship God alone. So if anyone starts getting a little bit weird, a little bit off on angels, take them to Revelation 19, 10, and 11. So we worship God alone. We're open to dreams and visions and angels coming, but everything must be measured against the plumb line of Scripture, and that's what Scripture teaches us here. This phrase is beautiful. You must not do that. John, get up. Worship God alone. I'm a fellow servant. Can't worship a fellow servant. I'm just like you and the others, the church, the martyrs. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This could be taken in many ways. Could be taken subjectively like Jesus, the one who gave his testimony, set the pattern and laid out and breathes into what becomes the spirit of prophecy. It could also mean objectively that prophecy always bears witness to Jesus. It's probably both. So if you want to know if prophecy that's operating among a group of people, a group of churches, is in line with the word of God, does it make much of Jesus? The testimony of Jesus, the testimony that he gave about the love of the Father and the coming of the kingdom and repentance and his death and his resurrection, that is at the heart of New Testament prophecy. So friends, we, we want to be a prophetic church. We saw that in chapter 11. And part of that means that we're immersed in the testimony of Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he did, what he does now. And that is the litmus test for prophecy. It always exalts and unveils who he is. John 16 says that about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. So that's the kind of spirit of prophecy that we're after. Verse 11, the, more, the warrior Messiah appears. The Old Testament Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the others that, that we've encountered They described that one day Yahweh, God, would establish his kingdom in the last days. And the Lord gave them glimpses of that. And now that we're seeing this here, it's being developed further. It's Yahweh's son. It's the promised Messiah, Jesus. And friends, the Jews missed it the first time around. They expected Revelation 19.11 from the beginning. And we know from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53 in particular, that Christ didn't come as a warring king, a victorious one the first time, his first coming, his incarnation. He came as a suffering servant, didn't he? And by and large, the Jewish people missed it. He came as a suffering servant. But friends, this is a new chapter. This is a new moment in salvation history. He is the reigning king. 
And Isaiah 52 and 53 says that he's going to startle the nations. He came, his blood was shed, he suffered, but he's going to startle the nations one day, and he's going to be exalted as king, and that's what we're seeing. This is like a visionary preview of Christ's second coming. A word that's used is the parousia, the presence, the arrival of Christ as conquering king. This is in line with other scriptures, isn't it? You can write this down and look at it later. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul says something that reiterates and underscores this. Paul says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So heaven opens here. He sees a rider on a white horse. Boy, we could spend three or four weeks just on this. I want us to just ponder some of the facets here. The rider is called faithful and true. It's reiterated, it's underscored over and over again in this passage so that readers get it. God and Christ, you are just in these judgments. You are fair. You see things the way that they should be seen. He judges and makes war in righteousness. One person says this, there is no doubt in John's mind that the righteous retribution about to be enacted on the beast, the Antichrist and his followers, is perfectly compatible with truth and justice. Then this description, let's look at this together, 12 through 16, the description of the writer. I've got some images up here, but they fall short, almost kind of kitschy compared to the reality that we find in Scripture. Christian icons and art can be helpful to help us ponder and meditate, but friends, this far outstrips all art, doesn't it? This is the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. He's got eyes like a flame of fire. We saw this in chapter 1. It's signaling that his vision penetrates to the heart of everyone all the time. It's omniscience in the flesh. This is Christ who sees each person and each situation perfectly as divine judge. He knows the spiritual condition of everyone before him. Whether it's one person, a city, or a nation, Christ has perfect vision to know exactly what is fair and right. He has many diadems and crowns on his head. Look at verse 12. This is a contrast with what we saw with Antichrist, with the dragon. They had seven crowns and ten crowns. Here it's Christ wearing many crowns. In the language, it's innumerable. He doesn't have ten. He doesn't have seven. This symbolizes that the one appearing has immeasurable sovereignty. He is the absolute sovereign. He is the king. He is the Lord. What's interesting, we find in Revelation 3.21 that the people of God will share the crown of Christ. We're going to share this crown. He has 
immeasurable, innumerable, limitless sovereign power. And with his bride, he shares the crown. For those that are faithful to him, he will place a crown on our heads. It's almost too much to believe. But we've got to keep in mind, as it is with Christ, first the cross, then the crown. That's the kingdom principle that's being taught all the way through the book of Revelation. First the cross, then the crown. It's a mystery in the, in the kingdom. I don't understand it at all. Lord, why do you work this way? Why first the cross? Why is there first suffering and then the crown of glory? I heard an interview this week. Some of you may have heard. It was an interesting interview with John Voight, the actor who played Midnight Cowboy and won an Oscar for that. And John Voight talked about an encounter that he had with the Lord. He was alone in a remote cabin, and his life was falling apart. He was going through a difficult time in his marriage, his family. He was estranged from his kids, his career was on the rocks, and he literally verbalized this in his cabin alone. Why is this so difficult? And he said the Lord spoke to him right in his ear, right in his spirit, and said, it is not supposed to be easy. When I heard him say that, something went off in me, a revelation. It shook him to the core, this encounter with the Lord, And he became aware in that moment of the Lord's love for him, the Lord's knowledge of him, his support for him. And he became a devoted follower of Jesus. The Lord told him it's not supposed to be easy. And I think the book of Revelation shows us, friends, that God is not out to create a comfortable environment for his bride, something cozy, something easy, It's meant to be difficult. And so rather than saying, Lord, why am I suffering? Why am I going through these hard times? Lord, give us the perspective of revelation in the word of God. What are you doing in me? How are you forming Christ in me? How are you preparing me? How are you preparing us as your beloved bride to stand before you ready And the Lord uses the mystery of suffering. I'll tell you right now, I'm deeply intimidated by that. There's many of you in this room who are better sufferers than I am. And I need your prayer. But friends, we've got to learn that suffering is a normal part of Christian life. It is. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Most of the time we do, don't we? How did I get into this difficult place? And if the Lord said it would be because you wanted to be here. Are you made bad choices? But sometimes the vice grip comes and squeezes us as it did for them in the first century. And persecution occurs. Friends, most of the church on the planet right now is suffering for Christ. And we're not talking about the suffering of a sprained ankle. We're talking about satanic, anti-Christ persecution that wants to end the people of God and the purpose of God aimed at them, we will suffer. And so we have to prepare ourselves for that. As we have worked through Revelation, dang, it is tough to finish right at 12. 
So I'm going to do this, all right? Uh, we're trying to learn how to do this each week. We've got a few more chapters of this. It's an exception because we normally end right at 12. But I'm going to keep going a little bit. Is that all right if I take a few more minutes? Colt said I could. He was a worship leader. Esther, Claire, cool. All right. Um, so if you need to go get your kids or something like that, you can slip out. And then we're just going to continue for about five minutes. All right? I want to end with this. We keep not ending with something that's very challenging. So if you need to go, then you are free to go. But I'm going to go for about five more minutes. All right? That is an unusual thing that we don't do often around here. But it's not a regular thing that we work through the book of Revelation, all 22 chapters. So I will not be offended at all if you need to go or if we need to relieve the kids and bring them in for the real easy stuff. So Christ has a name inscribed on him that only he knows. Wow, this is rich. This is deep. Could be the unknown sacred name of God. Could be that in the ancient world to know someone's name meant you had control over them. You would speak out that name, and Christ's name is known only to himself. No one has control. No one has power. And the point of this, one person says that Christ has a secret name. This means that the human, listen to me, the human mind cannot grasp the depths of Christ's being. Ah, oh. The human mind cannot grasp fully the depths of Christ's being. Friends, Christ is accessible to everyone. A child can read and learn about him and can hear about him. But friends, the greatest minds, the sharpest intellects are nothing before him. He is the greatest, most interesting person and mystery that we can search out. Friends, whatever you're into is boring compared to this. Give yourself to the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. He'll reveal himself to you. It is the greatest endeavor to throw yourself into. Young people, throw yourself into this. Say, I want to know Christ Jesus. I want to know him. I don't want to just know him at a surface level. I want to walk closely with him. I want to know his word. I want to know his ways. I want to have his spirit move through me. That's what this is getting at here. His robe is stained with blood. This suggests several things. I don't know about you, but I get a little bit uncomfortable hearing about this. But friends, most likely it's his own blood. His own blood. The battle hasn't even happened. And yet his garments are stained already with blood. It's signaling the love of God in Christ Jesus. My son's robes are stained with his own sacrificial blood. And that is a message to the nations. It could even be the blood of martyred saints that somehow swept up in his own sacrifice the blood of his martyred beloved who are precious to him has also stained him. But friends, this is the difficult part. It is the blood of God's enemies, the persecutors of the saints, in line with 
the book of Revelation's message. That's a heavy word. His name is called the word of God at verse 13. This links the book of Revelation directly to the fourth gospel. John's gospel, chapter one, says what about Jesus? He is the word of God. He is the active agent that does all that God seeks to be done. He is the self-revelation of God in his person, his words, and his deeds. Christ, for him to be called the word means this. He is God in action. The word of the Lord would come to the prophets. This is Christ, the word of the Lord. He is the word and he wields the sword of the word. Makes me think of Hebrews 4, the living and active word of God proceeds from the mouth of Christ and with it he strikes down the nations. The angels, the saints, the armies of heaven are with him, clothed in fine linen as Christ is. How are we doing? All right, we're going to end with with this. The Antichrist and the allies are destroyed. Look down at this and we'll end with this, I promise. But can you imagine trying to cover this in a few minutes? Each time, 21 verses. By golly, we're going to finish it today. The Antichrist and the allies of the Antichrist are destroyed in 17 through 21. I'll just end with this because there's so many questions and over the next few weeks we're going to be able to look more in, in more detail about this. But this vision here, 17 through 21 at the end, signals the final victory of Christ over the beast and the Antichrist, the false prophet, the earthly kings, and their armies who wage war against Christ and his army. There's an, an angel announcing the destruction of those that have opposed the lamb. And they're inviting the predatory birds to feast on the flesh of the slain. This is a fulfillment of prophecy from Ezekiel 39. And it is a gruesome parody of the invitation to the wedding feast of the lamb. There's one feast that you want to be at, the wedding of the lamb. You don't want to be at this gruesome feast. The beast and the false prophet, friends, they're captured and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. This is not a popular message right now. People avoid revelation, my goodness, and they avoid this language, but we are faithfully going to look at it. We'll see more about it next week. They're thrown into the lake of fire. Christ talked about the lake of fire in Matthew 25 and 13. And so we need to talk about it. And as we do, we trust the grace, the goodness, the love, the mercy of God to go to work in people. But friends, this is what the word says is before us. There is a lake of fire and you don't want to go there. It's not a scare tactic. I'm not scaring anyone. It's a sober tactic. You want to be a part of the beloved of God. The mercy of God reaches out to us over and over again 
and we receive the love and we join the body of Christ and we're his beloved. But friends, we can know that the opponents of God will end up in a place of punishment. And I tell you, I've tried to look at different theologies and deconstructions of all this. None of it makes any sense. Oh, well, they'll be annihilated and they'll... I don't see that in the text. I see forever and ever. So we'll look at this next week. This is part of the gospel. Matter of fact, if you have not given your life to Jesus, now's a good time to do that. Or if you're away from him, maybe you came today to watch some baptisms. Today is the day for you to give your life to Jesus. You don't even have to think about the dread of something like the lake of fire because there is a city before us. There's a wedding feast and you can join, you can participate, give your life to Jesus. It's as simple as saying, I confess that you are Lord and I believe that you died and I'm gonna live my life for you. So why don't we stand? Thank you friends for giving me an extra 10 minutes. Worship team, you can come up, and ministry team, if you'll come up. Again, this is unusual. We don't typically do this, but I'm just telling you, over the next few weeks, there is some stuff that we're grappling with in the Word of God. It's the end of the story, and there's a lot of confusion around eschatology and the end times, and so we just want to clarify it a little bit. Is that okay? So we're going to look at some things, and God's going to give us some fresh perspective and fire If you need prayer for any reason today, for healing, for a touch from God, for breakthrough, if you want to give your life to Jesus afresh, you can come up here. I'm actually going to be standing up here. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we are your beloved bride, that your love rests on us and fills us and sends us out into the world to work with you, to partner with you as you rescue people and draw them into your family. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the promises of Scripture and for the good news that Revelation is. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today. Have a wonderful day. We're going to be lingering around here for some ministry time. If you want to linger, if you want to worship a little bit, to sit where you are, and we'll see you next week. We're actually going to be looking at Revelation 20. So join us. Have a great week.